0: Just before we get into today's show, guys, uh, I just want to give a bit of an apology because although it's an absolutely cracking episode and I'm sure you all love it, uh, obviously we recorded this during the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, if you remember what that is. Uh, and Simon, living in Sydney, of course, we had to record it on the phone. So uh, Simon's line, uh, it dips out a bit in terms of quality at points. So uh, it might be. Not great to listen to in terms of the audio, but the content is still perfect and I'm sure you'll love it. So let's get into it. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Where Do We Begin podcast. My name's Harper and my co-host is Jackson. How are you, Jackson? I'm well. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm very excited to speak to the great man, Simon Hill. Are you? Yeah, definitely. Um,
1: a name synonymous with Australian soccer. I say soccer because... We have been talking AFL football recently, but a name synonymous with Australian soccer, um, one of the best commentators this country has ever seen. So very excited to like get in, have a chat with him, get to know his psyche, I guess. Yeah, even if
0: you're the most casual of Australian soccer football fans, you'll know Simon Hill's voice. He's called World Cups. He's called He called that John Aloisi penalty against Uruguay in 2005. He's done the Premier League. He's done African Cup of Nations, Asian Cups you recognize his voice.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: so let's get into it. All right. Now on the phone, we've got the second best voice in the Australian sports media behind my good friend Jackson over here. He's covered football in almost every continent across the globe. He's just waiting for the Antarctica Football League. It's Simon Hill, how are you?
2: Very good. Thanks, guys. How are you?
0: We're pretty good. So uh, grew up uh, in Manchester. Well, I think we can tell from the accent. Uh, what was that like, your early life over there?
2: Uh, my life in Manchester, wow, that was a long time ago. Um, well, it was obviously infused with football from a very early age. Uh, my dad took me to see my first game, Manchester City, of course, which is my team, when I was uh, five or six years old back in 1974 which is long before you were even thought of Um, and it's sort of a family heirloom that's been passed down through the generations as I said my dad's been a City fan all his life he still goes to a lot of the home games he's 85 now Uh, my granddad was a City fan all his life he passed away many years ago and my great granddad actually played for Manchester City before they were even known as Manchester City, they were known as Ardwick FC when he played for them in 1892 so you know, football has, has played a, a big part in, in my family's uh, life through ge- through the generations, and um, it was natural for me to, to follow suit, I guess. So, as I say, went to my first game when I was six, and, and that was it. I was hooked. Not that I had much choice.
1: Uh, did you play a lot when you were growing up?
2: Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, I played at school. I played for the school. I played for a couple of clubs locally. Um, there was one day where I actually knew that a, a scout from Manchester City was was coming to watch one of the junior games I was playing in. So, of course, I put in 110% effort <laughs> that day. But unfortunately, I wasn't good enough. So uh, he signed a good mate of mine, goalkeeper called Steve Crompton instead. who never actually played for the first team. Um, and I think that was when I was about 12 or 13 years old. So, I think I, I pretty much knew from that day on that uh, I wasn't going to be good enough to be a professional footballer. So, the next best thing was, uh, you know, how do I stay in this sport? And. I think you know even from that age, I knew really that I wanted to be uh, involved in football. so I actually wanted to be a writer. that's what i I trained as as a written journalist after my degree many years ago. so uh, uh, the the broadcasting sort of came about a bit by accident really. Um, but I started off in radio and and moved up to television and yeah, had had my dream job by the time I was twenty three twenty four.
0: What was it like supporting Manchester City before they were the big behemoths we know them as now?
2: Um, well, the, the strange thing is is that a lot of people, you know, think that uh, City fans only arrived at about two thousand and eight. Um, I've, I've watched City for you know over fifty years, and uh, in the early days of my supporting them in mean, the early uh, to mid seventies, City were a very good side even then. Uh, they ran Liverpool close a couple of times for the championship without ever actually winning it. Um, it was in the 80s, really, that City you know, dropped down into the doldrums and uh, went as low as the third tier of football. But in many ways, I sort of missed those days, um, although winning trophies is very nice. Don't get me wrong, I, I wouldn't change that. But uh, th- there was something about the old City, uh, almost a, a gallows humour amongst the, the supporters, um that suggested that you know no matter how bad it got and it did get very bad <laughs> for a long time, we were just we were always going to be there and um, you know particularly going to watch away games, I used to go on the old football special trains and the travel club coaches um, and it, it was just a way of life for me and uh, I loved it I, I still do. Um, but obviously City these days is, is a very different club to the one, you know, I grew up supporting. And uh, while I love the trophies, I love Kevin De Bruyne and Sergio Aguero, Vincent Kompany, Yaya Torre, all those big stars of of the recent past and of today, and the Etihad Stadium, which is a wonderful venue. Uh, there's something about me that misses, you know, the old city and, and Main Road in particular, because that was a big part of my childhood.
0: I don't know too much about the old city, I guess, as you put it. Um. But what I do know, uh, the Paul Dickov playoff final, were you at that game?
2: Yes, I was, yeah, at Wembley. Can you tell us
0: a bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, that was uh, a typical City performance, really. I mean, we we repeated it virtually many years later against Queen's Park Rangers, uh, grasping victory out of the jaws of defeat. Uh, we were 2 0 down with, I think, four seconds of normal time to play. And many people had actually left. Uh, they'd given up. I stayed, I'm glad to say. Uh, my dad, actually, who'd driven down from Manchester, I was living in London by then, but uh, my dad had driven down from Manchester. And when the second goal went in for Gillingham, he said, that's it. I've got a long drive back. I'm off. And I said, no, no, no. You know, stay. You, de- you never know. No, it's not happening. I'm off. So he was halfway up the M40 uh, by the time we went on penalties. But uh, I, I stuck it out. And, yeah, Paul dickoff went down in folklore for scoring. A, I think it was the 6 minute of injury time, the equaliser. And we went on to win on penalties. And I've I've since met Paul on quite a few occasions, and I actually played a charity game with him in Melbourne a couple of months ago, which oh. was uh, fantastic for me. So, uh, yeah, one of those you know tales that uh, I was glad I stayed to the end to be able to tell.
1: So, how is that compared to the Aguero moment?
2: Uh, well, uh, yeah, it's difficult to compare because they were both equally as important in their own right. Um, you know, in, in those days, City were in the third tier, and had we not gone up that year, the club would have been in severe financial difficulty. So, you know, maybe the Aguero moment would never have happened without Paul Dickoff scoring that equaliser. So it's difficult to compare. They were both brilliant moments in their own right, and I'm just fortunate enough to have, have been able to att- have attended both. Um, and, and a lot of other, you know, great moments and some not so great moments down the years as well. I was there in 1983 when we got relegated famously against Luton Town. I was there two years later against Charlton when the terraces were heaving, when we got promoted in '85. Um, I've, I've managed to be there for most of the, of the big occasions. And, uh, yeah, as they say, I'll be there hopefully at a few more yet because I'll be city till I die.
0: So we know you're a big music man. Uh, were you a big music fan when you were a kid as well, or was that more of a later thing?
2: No, it's. Uh, I, I got into music around nine or ten years old. Um, up until then, I don't really know too much about it, but a school friend of mine played me an album by Deep Purple, which again is is Way before your time, smoke Uh, on the water. Isn't it? It's 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 a heavy rock track, and from that moment on, my life changed completely. It was like the scales dropping from my eyes, and I I wanted to be a drummer, the same as Ian Pace out of Deep Purple. So, from that moment on, I was I was massively into heavy metal music. Still am today. Uh, I play drums in a heavy metal cover band here in Sydney played in lots of bands down the years, um, some better than others. And, uh, yeah, if, if, if I had my time over again, I think I'd probably still choose to be a football commentator, but it, it would be a close-run thing. Um, I, was, I was pretty close to sort of making it as a drummer many years ago. We had interest in a record label, but uh, university life sort of got in the way. So it's, it's a big, big passion of mine, and, uh, and again, probably will be till the day I pop my clogs.
0: Not sure if you've heard of him, but there's actually another Simon Hill drummer from the UK, from
2: Bristol. Yep, I've heard of him. Heard he's of more him? famous than me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, he's toured and recorded with bands like Pet Shop Boys and Westlife, and done stuff with Victoria Beckham. So, not too bad. But I'd say you're a bit of a tier above.
2: Not, not really my genre of music. But <laughs> yeah. uh, he's clearly a much better drummer than I am. I'm happy to admit that.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, um, moving on from your childhood a bit, um. How did you get into the media, sports, journalism landscape?
2: Um, Well, after I did my degree in Portsmouth, which uh, was unrelated to journalism. In in those days, you couldn't do degrees in journalism. I think you can do them at the drop of a hat these days. But when I was growing up, you couldn't. So I did a uh, uh, postgrad. It was called the National Council for the Training of Journalists, a pre-entry course in newspaper journalism. So I did that for a year in Portsmouth after I graduated with my degree. Um, So that sort of got me trained up to to do the job. And uh, then I'd started writing uh, match reports for the Portsmouth youth team in the Southeast Counties League for the local paper in Portsmouth, uh, a paper called The News in Portsmouth. And I applied for several jobs in written journalism, but this was in 1991 and there was a huge recession in the UK. And there weren't a lot of jobs around, so almost in desperation, really, I applied for a job as a commercial production writer, which is essentially writing adverts, for a local radio station in South Wales, thinking, OK, well, it's not journalism, but it's still writing. It's as close as I'm going to get in the current environment. Um, And to my amazement, they wrote back to me and said, look, we don't think you're quite suitable for this job, but we've got a job here as a sports reporter. Would you be interested in that? So, of course, I was. So I, I went for that job as, uh, as a sports reporter for Rec Dragon FM and I got it and I was on my way really and my career took a bit of a, a tangent, I suppose you could call it. Uh, I, w- I wanted to write, I still do in many ways, but I got into broadcasting instead. So went into radio and uh, spent many years in radio before I moved into television.
1: Were there many setbacks for you rising up the media ladder?
2: Uh, there were one or two. Um, the early part of my career was sort of quite smooth. I, I moved to the BBC in 1993, uh, first in local radio, and then I went down to London to work for the BBC World Service in 1995. Uh, spent three years there, then worked for the domestic broadcaster, BBC Radio 5 Live, where I, I commentate a lot of premier league games. And then I, I took a bit of a gamble in, in 2001. I got approached to... Uh, worked for a new entity called the ITV Sport Channel in the UK. Um, And I probably got my head turned a little bit by the glamour of television and, you know, the promise of a a better wage. And I decided to to go and work for ITV. And unfortunately, they they didn't have a very good business plan and the channel went bust within 12 months. So uh, I was out of work in 2002. Um, And after that, I sort of freelanced for a little bit and then... Uh, an old colleague of mine from the BBC World Service who'd moved to Australia a few years beforehand uh, got in touch with me and said, look, there's the a job here as a as a football commentator if you're interested in... Uh, of course, I said, well, why would they want me? You know, a guy from the other side of the earth. They don't know anything about me. But he went on about it so much that I said, look, OK, I'll send him a CV and a show reel and see what happens and, yeah... Rest is history, I guess. They offered me the job, and I came here in two thousand and three.
0: Yeah, just taking a step back there. Um, what was the transition from radio to TV like? Were you nervous about it at all?
2: Um, well, I didn't sort of go from one to the other in in one big step. When I was at the BBC working in radio, that this was sort of the the late nineties, and they started up a new um, digital service called BBC News Twenty Four. And within, this was a news channel, Rolling News, um, but within that, of course, they had sports bulletins, sports updates. Uh, so I started sort of dipping my toe in that water. Um, I did one day a week to start off with reading sports bulletins, you know, via AutoQ. So by the time it came that I moved to ITV in 2001, I was sort of well-versed in, in television, but I, I hadn't actually worked in it full time. I was still... My my day job, if you like, was still in radio. So it wasn't until I I went to ITV that I I worked properly in television full time. Um, So it was a gradual transition, really, and um, therefore it wasn't quite so much of a shock.
1: So were there many nerves about you moving out to Australia?
2: Um, I don't know about nerves because by that point I was pretty well-traveled, although I'd only actually been to Australia for five days, so I didn't know anything about the country. It, it was a massive life step, obviously. Um, my parents weren't particularly thrilled, I could tell you um, and of course, there were a lot of practical things that were difficult, moving you know your possessions over from one end of the earth to the other. when I arrived, of course, you know there, there was a big transition to make. I didn't understand the value of the dollar um, you know things were different, even though the language was the same. And, of course, the football was was very different as well. So there was a period of adjustment. And, um, you know, there are still things today that I can't say um, I'm, you know, 100% comfortable with, mainly football related. But, uh, you know, that that was part of the challenge, really. I mean, initially, I thought I'd be moving to Australia probably for, you know, two or three years, uh, have a different life experience and then go back. Uh, As it turned out, I've been here an awful lot longer, but uh, I wouldn't have changed it. Uh, it. It was a fantastic opportunity to live in a great country, in a different part of the world, experiencing a different sort of football culture. Um, I've you know, I've been really lucky that that my arrival and my career here has coincided with some brilliant moments for football in this country that I've been lucky enough to be a part of. So I've been blessed, really, to, to a boy from Manchester.
0: Were you a Sydney man from the start?
2: Well, yeah, that's where because uh, of course initially I went to work for SBS. So uh, both SBS and Fox Sports have their headquarters in Sydney. So uh, yeah, I've always lived in Sydney in my uh, in my time in Australia.
0: Yeah, well, so moving aside from the football thing a bit, uh, a few uh, fairly soon after you moved over to Australia, you covered the Ashes. So what was that like covering that different sport?
2: Well, I'd covered cricket uh, a fair bit during my days in the UK. Anyway, I'd actually done cricket commentary in only local radio, but uh, you know, ball by ball commentary, including a, a couple of finals at Lord's. So, obviously, I, I knew the sport, although I wasn't you know up to date with it on a day to day basis. And the way that came about was XBS somehow acquired the free to air rights. I think Channel Nine sort of passed passed over on them. Um, because they didn't think the series in 2005 was going to be very competitive, and it was prime time for them, so they didn't think they'd get the audiences. So SBS took a bit of a punt, and I think they they auditioned two or three different hosts, and for whatever reason, you know, weren't happy with any of them particularly. And so they asked me, and I remember saying at the time, "What on earth do you want me to present it for? I'm a football." Commentator, and they said, "Yeah, yeah, but you've done a bit of cricket before, you know. You can you can deal with it. You've hosted lots of different sports. So after a bit of thought, I thought, well, you know, this this is a great opportunity. So I went for it, and I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, obviously, mainly because England won, and it was a fantastic theory. Um, but you know, it, it was something different to do, and I think it went down." Pretty well amongst the, the population, uh, and it sort of catapulted my name into the forefront of, uh, of people's minds in terms of sport. And then, of course, on the back of that, we had the World Cup qualifier against Uruguay. I think it was only three or four weeks after that. So, 2005 was a was a massive year for me. Um, and again, I just was fortunate to be the right in the right place at the right time, I guess.
1: So, you did mention the Uruguay Australia qualifier. We do have a bit of an audio grab from that game.
3: That means that if John Aloisi can score this goal, Australia will be there. Here's Aloisi for a place in the you World made Cup. For us. He yeah! scores!
1: So obviously being one of those, where were you when this happened moments, how did that feel to be the voice of it?
2: (laughs) Well, to be honest, as I've said on many previous occasions, that wasn't my favourite commentary, to be honest. Um, It was a pretty difficult night. I was jet lagged because I'd been in Montevideo for the first leg just four or five days prior to that. So I was tired. Um, and Craig Foster, of course, my co-commentator, as you can hear on that little graph, was, was very, very emotional and sort of, um, you know, yelped all over my call at various points during <laughs> the one hundred and twenty minutes and the penalty. So it it was a tough night. Um look it's a, a wonderful thing to be associated with. And I, I don't I don't know how many times I've heard that call <laughs> down the years, must be in the hundreds. Um I actually prefer the calls at the World Cup in two thousand six to that. But uh yeah, it it was a lovely moment, a great night. Um And I think the question I get asked most is, oh, so you must have had a big night. night. Where did you go to celebrate? Hey, I went to bed. I was (laughs) cooked. I don't think I even had one beer.
0: (laughs) Wow. So you talked about Foz's um, emotions, but you were a fairly recent immigrant at the time. Did you have much of an attachment to the Socceroos then?
2: Um, To a certain extent, but but obviously not the same as somebody who's born here. It's probably still the same now, but in some ways you know, that's no bad thing as a commentator because ostensibly you are supposed to be neutral, um, even if you're, you know, commentating to a domestic audience. So I I think it helps to have a certain sense of detachment. Of course, I want the national team to do well. Um, You know, if I feel any connection to an Australian sporting team, it's the Socceroos because I've I've called so many of their games down the years and I'm very passionate, almost evangelical about, you know, promoting football and, and uh, realising football's potential in this country. So, yeah, of course I want them to do well, but um, am I a fan in the same way that somebody born here is? No, of course not. Um, you know, I was born elsewhere. Um, and my country's England, so uh, I think that's only natural. But as I say, I think in, in some respects that's no bad thing.
0: So for uh, the commentaries, the iconic commentaries kind of, you that's not your favourite, you said, but um, how much preparation goes into some of the lines?
2: Uh, well, the lines. I mean, sometimes you have one or two prepared, uh, as I did at uh, the World Cup in, in Germany, two thousand and six. But obviously, you know, a commentary is, is a game of football that unfolds in a thousand different ways that you cannot predict. So you can't script a 90-minute commentary. Um, and even if you prepare a line or two for a goal or a you know a certain event, you have to be, be prepared not to use it as much as use it because it might not fit the context of what you've just seen. Um, for example, and I'll dip into an a game here, when Alessandro Del Piero scored his... His first goal for Sydney FC, I had a, a nice line prepared. And fortunately it worked because he scored a beautiful free kick. But had he scored his first goal uh, with a tap-in from two centimetres or had it hit his backside and gone in from a yard out, I couldn't have used the eulogy that I used because it wouldn't have fitted the occasion, if you see what I mean. So, you know, you, you have to you have to be a bit flexible with with your lines. Um, and not be too pre-prepared but it's nice to have something up your sleeve if something special happens
0: Is there any other way that like aside from specifically preparing lines is there another way you can practice? Do you watch old games or something like that?
2: Well it's not so much practice obviously I've I've now called you know thousands of games of football so it, it's more about just watching back, you know, your, your commentary and, and picking up on little mistakes. And trust me, I watch every game back and there are still plenty. Um, maybe so small that people at home wouldn't necessarily notice, but I notice. Um, I know if I've got something wrong and I know if I've had a, had a good game or conversely had a bad game. So I think it's just about keeping on top of what you're doing. Uh, and the thing I always say to young commentators is research. Don't skimp on your research. Even if you know the teams back to front, you think you know the players, make sure you're across every single scenario and every little bit of information uh, on every single player because you never know when you might need it.
1: So moving on, Yeah, we've just qualified for the World Cup. You're going along with SBS. How's that feeling to commentate a World Cup?
2: Yeah, I mean, that was probably the the culmination of a lifetime's dream to do that, really. Uh, I've been to World Cups before. Uh, I've been to the one in France in ninety eight and the one in Japan and Korea 2002, although the one in 2002 I only went as a fan. So the World Cup itself wasn't a new experience for me. Uh, the calling games at a World Cup was, um, and that was very, very special. And particularly, of course, as it was Australia's First World Cup in thirty-two years. I didn't, I didn't exclusively call Australian games at that World Cup, which people sometimes forget. I did other games as well, but uh, calling those Australian matches in particular was, you know, very very special for me, and of course very important for the country. So, you know, you, you want to get those games right, and um, hopefully, I did.
0: Yeah, well, we all thought it was a pretty perfect job. But um, the Italy game was it a penalty? <laughs>
2: Yeah, it was a penalty. <laughs> I think cool. I think we're you know I think we're blinded by the fact that had that been an Australian player that had gone down and an Italian defender sticking the leg out, we'd have gone yeah penalty.
0: Yeah, it was definitely but contact.
2: The, the great thing about that is it gives us a story at a World Cup, and that we, we lacked stories at a World Cup. So you know the, these moments of, of great joy, which we had with Tim Cahill and John Aloisi and Harry Kewell scoring against Croatia and qualification for the round of 16, and also the down moments of you know that penalty being conceded in the last minute, they're all part of a nation's football story. And we've now got that at, at World Cup finals level, which is fantastic. So um, you know, I don't get too hung up about it. I, I think uh, Lucas was probably a bit rash in going to ground early. Of course Grosso was going to fall over. What else was he going to do? That's the game of football, whether you like it or not.
1: Is that the best Socceroos team you've seen in your time here?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, You know, it wasn't called a golden generation for nothing. Uh, When you looked at the clubs that those players played at, a lot of them playing in the Premier League, some in uh, La Liga, Bundesliga, the top leagues uh, of of world football, and we haven't really been able, unfortunately, to repeat that in, in great numbers since... Um, but they were a very good side. and I, I think if there is, you know, a regret about the game against Italy, it's that had they gone through, they would have faced, um, I think it was Ukraine in the last eight, and I think they'd have beaten Ukraine. So, you know, they could have got to the semi-finals, and they, they were perfectly capable of doing that. They were a very, very good side, and uh, I think it'll be a long time before we see that like again, to be honest.
1: So, you did mention all those players playing in Europe and the big leagues. Do you think Australians now are a bit underappreciated as footballers?
2: Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, probably. Um, we tend not to make perhaps quite so much of the likes of Matty Ryan and Aaron Moy at the moment. Maybe they've got more popularity than some of the other guys. But we've also got guys playing in Germany and Holland. And, and various other leagues around the world um you know we've got some good footballers make no mistake about that, and we have still you know qualified for four consecutive world cups. you don't do that if you're if you're bunnies um so we've got some good players, but it's just that obviously. You know, we, we we tend to frame them in terms of that golden generation because they were so good, and that's understandable. Every every country does the same thing. You know, I come from England, and players today still get compared to the World Cup-winning team of 1966, and that was well over 50 years ago. So it, it's part of your football folklore. But, uh, yeah, they, they could do with getting a bit more recognition, but that's a problem for the game of football in this country, not just for the soccerers.
0: If there was one player that you could get from that golden generation and put into this current Socceroos team, who do you reckon it would be?
2: Um, well, that's a tough one. Uh, in terms of goals, probably Tim Cahill, but we've only just waved him goodbye. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I'd, I'd probably say Mark Viduca. I, I think Dukes was a very, very special player. I know Harry probably had Harry Kuehl I'm talking about probably had more natural talent, but I think Mark Viduca was just uh, brilliant and I I, I loved uh, the way that he, he would hold up the ball, he would bring others into play, he could score goals, he could create goals, he, he was almost a complete player but um, I mean you, you could make a case for six, seven, eight of that uh, golden generation, they were all terrific players, Brett Emerton, Lucas Neal, Mark Schwartz you know even the unsung heroes like Vinnie Guella, they were top, top players.
0: So just after that World Cup finished um, Joined Fox Sports Is that Kind of the peak Of an Australian sports Journalist's uh, Career I guess
2: Well I mean it was For me Working in football Because that's where All the football went Um, I suppose it depends On what your sport is Really But you know, for me, that was that was a natural place to go because uh, uh, the the Socceroos moved over to Fox from SBS after that World Cup. They had the A League already, so if you wanted to work in football, Fox Sports was the place to be, and of course that remains the case uh, even to this day. Um mm. So, yeah, I, I was happy to make that move. I was glad that they wanted me, and uh, I've had a, a long and thankfully you know very successful career with Fox ever since I've been there since 2006
1: So quickly just moving back to your time at SPS how was it working with the likes of Les Murray and Craig Foster?
2: Well uh, look you know I, know I know that Les is obviously a, uh, a legend in this country um, before I moved to SPS I, I didn't know who Les was in, in all honesty um, because obviously I grew up in a different part of the world and uh You know, I very quickly learned that Les and Johnny Warren, of course, were, you know, very revered figures here, and rightly so, because they did an awful lot for for football in in this country. Uh, So it was a privilege to work with those people. And, you know, Craig as well, I I worked very closely with in terms of the commentary and shows like the World Game. Um, I was very lucky that, you know, I, I went from England And when I moved to Australia, I I moved straight into a pure football environment. Everybody was passionate about football at SPS. Not just Les, Johnny, Craig, but Andrew Osati, Kyle Patterson, uh, Robert Grasso, people that you you might not know quite as well. They were all very, very steeped in football. So it was a natural home for me for those first three years um, and and a real privilege to work there. But, uh, you know, things move on and... Unfortunately, the football, or fortunately for me, the football moved to Fox, and I moved with it.
0: So you obviously probably most well known for covering the A League and Socceroos games, but um, some people might not know that you've done some games while you're not actually there, uh, like ACL Champions League games, and you did the K League. What's that kind of thing like?
2: Yeah, I called uh, a K League match from South Korea last Friday uh, by some pretty. Snazzy new technology called Grabio. Um, and I actually called the game from my, my front room. I sat on the sofa and watched the pictures on the laptop and and uh and call it from there, which is a very different experience. And that's the great thing about football, you're always having new experiences. Uh we had a couple of issues with the audio technology, but you know, that that's to be expected given that it's new. Uh and it's probably gonna be the way of the future because it's it's much more economical and means you can you know, you can call games from anywhere in the world from the comfort of your own sofa. Um, I still prefer being at a football ground, I have to say, but uh You know, in these COVID 19 times, it was just nice to be able to call again the football again
0: because I haven't done one in a while. So, yeah, like you said, that K League game didn't have any fans. But for the games that you call that do have fans, but you call them from a studio back in Australia, if you're calling an ACL game or something in Japan, what's it like not being able to kind of interact with the crowd noise and the atmosphere from the studio?
2: Well, I mean, you sort of do because you, you have a, uh, the crowd noise mixed into your headphones, so you're still aware of the fact that the crowd are there. Um, it, look, it's not ideal calling a game off the screen uh, because obviously we're only seeing what you're seeing. The advantage of being at the ground itself is that you can see the peripheral stuff that might be going on down in the technical zone or the substitutes warming up or you know something happening in the crowd or, or, or you respond to the crowd noise. So... Being at the ground is always more preferable than being outside. But uh, you know, sometimes you have to accept that uh, economically, it's not possible for them to send us, for example, to Uzbekistan on a Wednesday night, and then be back in Australia to call an early game at the weekend. That's just pure financial reality. So it, it's a mix of of things. But um, hopefully, you know, we don't lose that experience of actually being live at the ground because that's. That's one of the best parts of the job of, of being a commentator, really.
1: So, what is what are some of your favourite stadiums you've been to?
2: Um, probably the favourite stadium in terms of atmosphere was the Estadio Centenario Montevideo for the first leg against Uruguay in two thousand and five. Um, the, the, the stadium literally bounced for the entire ninety minutes. Uh, that, that was a great thing to be a part of. Um, obviously I've been to some of the most wonderful stadiums in the world, right around the planet. Um, you know, from the World Cup in 2006, the, the stadium in Kaiserslautern, the, the new stadium in Munich, the Allianz Arena, um, off the top of my head. Uh, I've been to the Bernabeu in, in Madrid, I've been to Old Trafford, I've been to Villa Park, I've been to Anfield. The Emer- um, Actually, I haven't been to the Emirates, but I went to Highbury, uh, all, all those famous old grounds. So, yeah, I've been you know very fortunate and, and hundreds more besides that are not as famous, but in parts of the world that you'd never get to see. Or not for football, such as in Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan or Uzbekistan or Vietnam or, or Qatar and Bahrain. You know, I've been, been lucky enough to be in all of those places uh, thanks to football and, and covering the soccer and, and this beautiful game that we all love.
0: So, you speak of all of those overseas countries. What's the, your personal favourite if you just had to pick one?
2: Oh, um, Kyrgyzstan was special. I really enjoyed that because. Again, that's a place that you'd never really visit if it wasn't for football. So you know you're seriously off the beaten track when you go into those sorts of places. Um, I have to say I also enjoyed uh, going to Lebanon and Jordan for for different reasons. Uh, I'm a bit of a a political uh, uh, history junkie. So, you know, I like seeing places that um, have a history to them. And, of course, Lebanon has a very... Uh, interesting and, and rather checkered history. And when we were there, the Syrian war had only just sort of kicked off over the border. It was very tense. Um, it's it's the first capital city that I've been on, been in that actually has tanks driving down the, the main street. Um, and then the game was shifted to the port city of Saida because there was uh, a fear about terrorist activity and. And then two days later, we went to Jordan and went to see one of the seven wonders of the world in Petra. And then on game day, we went to the Dead Sea and floated in the salt water of the Dead Sea before going to call a World Cup qualifier. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, they're just ridiculously bizarre experiences that we've been able to have, uh, thanks to football, really. So, you know, while, while many people might say, oh, I choose that because it's a great ground and a great game of football that I witnessed, that's part of it. For me, it's, it's also the, the travel experience uh, which makes these trips so special.
1: So when you do go to a World Cup, a major tournament like that, do you get a lot of time off or do, are you mainly focusing on commentating, <laughs> no. commentating the next few days?
2: Yeah, th- th- there's very little time off. Um, you, you tend to work pretty much every day when you're at a World Cup. Uh, if you're not calling games, you're preparing to call games um, I also, when I was there in 2006, had hosting duty. So I was flying between Stuttgart and Berlin because I was hosting some of the SBS daily shows and also going out on the road reporting on you know the training sessions, the press conferences. So you're pretty much working from dawn till dusk. Um, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, if you're at the World Cup, you don't need a day off. You You, you rest when you get home. Um so I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have changed a, a single second of, the, of that experience
0: So we haven't heard your voice at um Australia, in Australia for a World Cup for a few years uh, since you've moved to fox sports so and we've got some other commentators on it are there any particular moments that you're kind of jealous of you're like oh shit I wish I was calling that moment like the Tim Cahill goal or something or anything like that
2: no, look. Yeah, yeah the guy who called like, that old David Bashir is a good friend of mine. I was I was delighted for him that uh, he got that moment. I I can't be greedy. I've had so many big moments in my career. I've called it World Cups. I called Australia winning the Asian Cup on home soil in twenty fifteen. I've called thirteen or fourteen Grand Finals. I've called Premier League games, European Championship finals, African Cup of Nations finals, Asian Cup finals. You you can't. You know, you can't sit there and go, "Oh, that should have been me." Um, I've had I've had a fantastic career. I hope there's a bit more of it to go yet. I'm not quite done yet. But uh, if it all ended tomorrow, I would say, "Hey, I've been the luckiest guy in the world." So, no, I don't get jealous about specific moments. Um, there are still things I'd like to do, but uh, no, I've I've uh, I've got scrapbooks full of, of stuff that I'm happy that I've done.
0: Now you've been all over the world, as we've said. Um, But occasionally we've all had just a shocker of a trip that's been shit from the start. Have you had any particular commentary trips that have been uh, not a great experience?
2: Uh, There's probably a couple that stand out for different reasons. Um, One was in China in 2007, a World Cup qualifier in a city called Kunming, uh, which was at very high altitude, and I think it was chosen to be at high altitude specifically to try and, you know, put the Aussies off. Um, in the end, they drew nil-nil. I think Mark Schwartz saved a penalty late on, but it was a very tough trip because I, I got altitude sickness, as a lot of people did on that trip. Uh, pinver Bate, who was the coach at the time, is sadly no longer with us, actually almost keeled over during a press conference because he was so unwell. And during the 90 minutes, I... Only just managed to get through thanks to a couple of uh, pills that uh, the soccer's doctor gave me because I was, <coughs> excuse me, so sick. So that that stands out as not being a particularly pleasant memory. Um, the other one was probably Oman in 2009, not because of the game particularly or, or the surroundings. We had a, a lovely trip to Oman, but technically it was very very difficult. Um, all all the broadcast equipment that we had requested and paid for did not arrive. And we basically had to cobble together bits of commentary kits, um, which is not great preparation to call a game and wasn't great audio quality to go back to Australia. So, you know, you leave those places thinking, well, that's that's really unfortunate and it's not a great memory because you want to give the best possible service to your viewers back home. So I'd probably say those two.
1: So here on the podcast, we're a huge fan of women's sport and we recently interviewed Bree Davy, who was a former Matilda, focusing on the, the Socceroos a lot in your career. How have you seen the rise of the Matildas uh, recently?
2: Well, I actually call the Matildas um, <clears throat> at the 2004 Olympics in, in Athens. So I've got a long history with the Matildas and I, I did actually call their Olympic qualifier just recently um, when they got the draw they needed against China to, to go through the playoffs against Vietnam. So I, I've kept a watching brief on the Matildas. Um, a big fan of, of the way they've developed their game over the last few years. Um, obviously, I know Anthony very well. Uh, I, I think it's brilliant because, you know, they're, they're, they're great ambassadors, not only for Australia, but for our sport. I wish they got a bit more publicity in this country, not just Sam Kerr with respect to it, but some of the others because they're great footballers. I've also called uh, a few W League games this year and thoroughly enjoyed the experience. So for me, it's you know it's not about men's football or women's football. It's just football for me. Um, and whatever gender, it's, it's great to watch and great to call. And I think women's football in general has improved out of sight from when I first uh, called those Olympic Games in 2004. What strikes me these days is the speed of the women's game it was pretty slow when I first started calling it it's not anymore
0: now you've covered some of the most iconic moments ever in Australian football and we've got an audio grab of one you might remember now
3: Antonis had no right to get through there really still he goes on O'Neill giving chase for Laundley. still Terry Antonis has he won it for Melbourne victory Turned hero in navy blue runs to accept the adulation of the victory fans. Are they heading to a sixth grand final? Extraordinary.
0: Is that one of your favorite A League moments?
2: <laughs> I think it's one of the Melbourne Victory fans' favorite. <laughs> yeah, I, oh, is that mean, that
0: game I'm a Victory fan?
2: Great. Yeah, they. <laughs> They've made a bit of a thing about the, my use of the word forlornly, haven't yeah. they? It's quite nice, actually. And I, I you, that wasn't scripted. That was just off the cuff. But, uh, yeah, look, you know, it was an incredible moment because Terry Antonis, of course, had scored the own goal, which uh, uh, took us into extra time. And uh, he got atonement, didn't he, to pardon uh, pardon the pun. But, yeah, great, great moment. And I'm, I'm glad I had the privilege of calling that. It was fun.
0: Is that the one that gets talked about most to you by the fans?
2: <laughs> yeah, it, well, it, it appears to be. Maybe it's just that the, the Victory fans are, you know, the most numerous and, and the most vocal. I don't know. I mean, Sydney FC fans, I think, uh, quite like my call of Milosznikovic's winning penalty in the shootout oh, against. Oh, no, do
0: about that.
2: <laughs> you know, dreams have come true in sky blue. They, they quite like that one. So there's been a few down the years, but they're nice to be associated with.
1: So moving on to the A-League specifically, who are uh, some of the favourite players that you've seen in the league?
2: Oh, there's been so many. Um, Like many people, I love Thomas Broitz. I thought he was the best player I've seen in the A-League. Terrific to watch and such a cool guy as well to to speak to. Uh, Bess Albarisha, I know he divides opinion, but I love him because he's got that fire in his belly. And, you know, when the eyes go, you can see the passion. Uh, I love that. Um, And some of the players that, you know, you, you probably wouldn't think of straight off, like Sasha Ognanovsky I love his whole-hearted approach and I've got to know Sasha very very well worked with him in commentary at Fox and uh, you know I'll probably count him as a mate now, now that he's finished playing um, so there's, there's a lot um, so many players I've admired down the years uh, but that's that's just two or three of them.
0: now we've got a clip will play at the end of the show with some of your uh, some of the most iconic a league players but what's been your favorite non-A-league moment that you've covered over the years?
2: Favourite non A League moment. Um, Well, I'll go back to my career pre Australia if I can. Uh, In 1998, I was lucky enough to go to a country called Burkina Faso to cover the African Cup of Nations. I spent six weeks in West Africa uh, covering one of the most unbelievably enjoyable tournaments you could ever wish to be a part of and uh, the semi-final was a game between Burkina Faso, the furthest, furthest they'd ever been in the tournament, and the Democratic Republic of Congo um, and that was a very, very difficult game to call, let me tell you, because of the names and uh, there was also incidents at the end because Faso lost and uh, the riot police waded in with tear gas because the fans got a bit unruly and We had a very eventful journey back to our base in Ouagadougou, the capital. So that's something that will live with me um, uh, for a a very long time. Um, Long time ago, nearly 30 years ago now, but uh, that was an an unbelievable experience.
0: Now, African football has had its fair share of struggles in the last few years, especially. um, And as has Australian football, um, can you talk to us a little bit about what you think can be done to kind of reverse that, uh, the sliding down we've had recently?
2: Well, it's, it's multi-layered, isn't it? Um, you know, first of all, we have to get uh, the short-term future of the game resolved. There's some question mark as to whether, you know, Fox want to continue. If that's the case, if they don't want to continue, then obviously that leaves a big financial black hole, which the game has to deal with And, of course, in the last 24 hours, we've seen the the naming rights sponsor Hyundai end their association with the game as well. So there are financial challenges with the game. Um, I I personally think we need a second division. Ultimately, we need promotion relegation. We need to involve the whole football family. Uh, And we need to get back to basics. We've chased the mainstream, I think, for, for way too long. I think we need to remember that football is the world game for a reason. It's the best game on the planet. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need salary caps, we don't need squad limits, Um, we don't need Star Wars rounds, we just need proper football. We need an authentic competition that people can relate to and get involved in, and we need that tribalism, we need the active supporters back. We kill that ourselves through fear of offending the mainstream. Ridiculous. So we need to get those supporters back doing what they do best, and that's creating the unique atmosphere that only football provides here in Australia. So that's just a handful of things. There are many, many more, but uh, those will be the, the top few off, off the top of my head.
0: Now, Simon Hill, let's just say you've been announced as a new head of football in Australia. You can <laughs> make three changes. What are they?
2: Three changes. Um, I would have a second division and promotional relegation. That would certainly be one. I would do away with the salary cap. That would be two. And I would get the active fans back at all costs. That's three. That's what we need.
0: Yeah, that's exactly
1: what we need. Do you think it's a big problem, the whole sharing stadiums thing? We've seen Western Sydney recently build their own stadium and have the active the active support be such a big part of the the ground and the stadium and the and the atmosphere of the ground do you think ground sharing is sort of hurting the Air league in a way
2: absolutely we need boutique stadiums small stadiums that that are the right size for our crowd now you know one example i go to brisbane regularly Suncorp stadium is a fantastic place but it's too big Uh, And with even 15,000 Brisbane rural fans inside, it looks, feels, and smells empty. Um, That's not a good look for our league. We have to move away from oversized stadiums. We have to get away from playing on Aussie rules ovals. They're not suitable for our sport. Uh, I know that's problematic, but there are solutions out there and our clubs need to to take them. Um, Another example, Sydney FC, of course, the SFS is being rebuilt at the moment they've moved to smaller venues i think it's much better atmosphere at those stadiums why they would want to go back to the sfs to a fifty all all-seater stadium where it's going to feel empty i've got no idea uh, maybe you know corporate revenue has something to do with that i sort of understand that on one level but really it should be about the fan experience and that means boutique stadiums compacts stands close to the pitch Get the atmosphere right, make it an enjoyable fan experience. Because as we've seen during COVID nineteen, football without fans is nothing.
0: Exactly right. And just before we go to our last segment, let's say tomorrow is your last day on earth. What do you want to be remembered as, Simon? Hill? <laughs> well, I
3: hope
2: it's not. <laughs> um, what do I want to be remembered as? Uh, look, I, I would hope. I would hope that a few people say I made a bit of a contribution. In terms of, uh, you know, broadcasting football, both in this country and in the UK, they probably wouldn't say that in the UK because they, they wouldn't remember me. But uh, maybe here in Australia, a little bit more. Hopefully, they would say, you know, I did a half decent job and I made a bit of a contribution.
0: Now, boys, it's time to get into the serious stuff. Big fanfare. We're fired up. It's the quiz. It's the fabled and famous Where Do We Begin Podcast quiz. So uh, Simon and Jackson, we're just going to be doing five questions, you two head-to-head. Uh, your name is your buzzer and it's uh, we'd like to have it vaguely related to our guest and their career. So are you ready?
2: <laughs> sure.
0: I
1: definitely think it's a bit
0: one-sided, but <laughs> let's, let's go. <laughs> okay. Well, question one, this one, a uh, pretty even match, I reckon. So Simon Pegg is an actor from UK. He's been in a trio of films, uh, co-starring he and Nick Frost and directed by Edgar Wright. It's known as the Cornetto Trilogy. Can you name two of the three films in the trilogy? Jackson. Jackson. I actually watched these recently.
1: So um, Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead.
2: And I've got no idea about films, I can tell you now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the other one's The World's End. We've got a little audiogram from that one.
3: A lot of people are saying that about the Bible these days. What, that it was written by Alexander Dumas? <laughs> Don't be daft, Steve. It was written by Jesus. <laughs>
0: there you go, Simon Pegg. Uh, so, question two. Uh, Jackson's 1-0 up. Closest to the pin. Until the mid-20th century in the UK and the US, a hill... Uh, needed to be below what height to be considered a hill and not a mountain?
2: <laughs> <laughs> what sort of a question is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Simon, follow will go. 50 metres.
0: 50 metres? Jackson, what do you want to go with? Uh, I'll go 51. 51, while well, you're closest is 304.8. <laughs> 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 Had to be strategic there. 1,000 feet. Oh. Is uh, Hill? Oh, under a thousand feet. Now, question three. Uh, so, uh, Jackson, you tune all up. This is strange territory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to mix it up a bit for this one. So, uh, what is the game known as Sencho san no Mare" or Ship Captain's Orders in Japan, Mando mando in Spain, or I command, I command, and Kongen befala in Norway, or The King Commands? What is that game known as in Australia? So it's something to do with our guest, Simon Hill, vaguely related, very vaguely. Repeat the question. A bit of a long one. So uh, this game, it's a worldwide game. It's known as the Ship Captain's Orders in Japan, or the Japanese version of that. I command, I command in Spain, and the King Commands in Norway. What is it known as in Australia?
2: And it's a game.
0: It's a game. It's little kids play this game. Oh, uh, Simon. Simon. Marbles? It's not marbles, no. <laughs> oh, it's, no. Jackson? Jackson? Simon, Simon Says. says <laughs> Simon Says. There you go.
2: Yeah, so yeah.
0: <laughs> Jackson's three to up. So continue, <laughs> I <you> blown, Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> continuing on the topic of uh, Simons and Hills, ancient Rome... <laughs> Jackson having a bit of a fit there. Um, ancient Rome was founded on hills, <laughs> so, <laughs> so they could see attackers <laughs> coming from far off. How many hills was ancient Rome founded on? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: no idea.
0: You've got to get it exactly right. I'll give you a clue. It's under ten.
2: Oh, Simon. Simon. Seven.
0: Seven's correct.
2: <laughs>
0: I'm on the board <laughs> <laughs> It's 3-1 to Jackson And uh, I was going to do this as a little bonus question But I doubt you know what, The seven hills were called Carineal uh, Qu- Hill The Viminal Hill The Capitoline Hill The Esquiline Hill The Palatine Hill The, the Caelian Hill And the Aventine Hill For all our ancient Roman it's listeners K. out there Sorry? <laughs> Not the Tim K Hill, unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> so That was the eighth one It was a big forehead <laughs> um, Question five Simon you can get back into it You're three one down But this question is a who am I So Whoa. we're going to be going down from five points All the way down to one point With a series of clues And you can buzz in whenever you want But once you're buzzed in You can't come in again Until the other person has had their go So for five points I was born on the 6th of March 1988 in Sint Truiden, Belgium. No one more buzzing? Simon?
2: Kevin de Bruyne.
0: It's not Kevin de Bruyne. Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> for four points, I'm an athlete who has plied my trade for teams in England and Belgium. Uh, no clue. Continue. Continue? Okay. For three points.
2: Can I have another go now?
0: No, you can't, because Jackson hasn't buzzed in yet. So you've got to wait for him to get it wrong.
2: Okay.
0: For three points, I've won twenty-three caps for the Belgian national football team, and was in the squad for the twenty eighteen World Cup. Oh, um, uh, Romelu Lukaku. Can we have a drum roll, please? Is it Romelu Lukaku? Not Cup. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Simon, do you want to have a go? Uh, no,
2: give me one more clue. He's
0: got one wrong, so I need I need, to, I need
2: another clue.
0: So uh, for two points, you can level it if you get this here, Simon. Uh, for two points, I've scored one career goal. Uh, also, I was started my career, but I was born in 1988, and I've scored one career goal, and I stand at uh, 1.93 metres or 6 foot 4, and I'm currently playing for Club Brugge or Club Bruges. We're in the number 88. And remember the types of questions we've had previously.
2: Oh, dear. Um, so his name's obviously Simon. <laughs> Timmy Simon. Or Hill. It could be Hill. Timmy Simons.
0: Timmy Simons is incorrect, unfortunately. Mm. So, uh, Jackson, do you want to have a go? I have no clue No clue? Okay For one point uh, It's dead rubber So I'll open it back up to you, Simon If you want to have a go for this one pointer uh, For one point I played as a goalkeeper for Liverpool 155 times between 2013 and 2019
2: What's a goalkeeper
0: From, from Belgium And I've uh, played for teams in England and Belgium
2: Uh Not Karius, is
0: he? He's not it's not Carius. It's uh, not Carius. It's his first name's uh, Simon, or it's spelt. It's not pronounced in that way oh, usually. Well. It's
2: Mignolet.
0: Simon Minule is correct. <laughs> but can we get a round of applause for Jackson? He's won the quiz. Well
2: done, Jackson.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well done, Jackson. <laughs> Unlucky Simon. Uh, nearly had it with Carius. Oh, you're close, but is Carius from Belgium?
2: No, he's not even Belgium.
0: <laughs> is it? Where, where's he from? German?
1: Yeah, I think he's German. Uh, yeah, I think he might be. I had not even realised that Minule was playing for Andelek. Um, and is it no Club Ruger at the moment? Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. And uh, I think that just about wraps us up, unless anyone else wants to say anything. All good. All right. Okie dokie. Thank you very much, Simon Hill, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: And how good was that Harper? Simon Hill, what a legend! That was great chat. Great
1: guy. Just the, the iconic voice of when you think of Australian soccer, yeah. and especially the A League, iconic voice. And he, he very happy to have him on the podcast. Of yeah, exactly.
0: So Simon Hill, he's been around the traps for his football commentary career. Um, he's been to, as we said uh, at the start, he's been to every continent other than Antarctica, covering <laughs> the game. Uh, so he's been to lots of stadiums. Obviously, what are some? Uh, just the general sporting or specifically football stadiums that you've been to in your life. So I've, I
1: talked about it in a few podcasts ago. I went to the World Cup in 2010. Uh, There's Soccer City, where the final was held. It's definitely one of the most impressive stadiums I've ever seen. It's like a cauldron. The roof sort of bends back over onto the stands. Did you so go to the final? I didn't go to the final. The, the most, the last game I went to was the semi final between. Um, Spain and Germany, which is at another impressive stadium, Durban Stadium, with the sort of arch, the, like Wembley arch, but it's a South African
0: flag. Oh, right. It's yeah. really amazing to see. Yeah, um, so I've been to, uh, I was born in Japan, obviously, went back a few years ago, and we went to the Saitama Stadium uh, for the Emperor's Cup, which is like the equivalent of the FA Cup uh, over there. Or was it the equivalent of the League Cup? I think one of them. And uh, so that was on New Year's Day in 2018, would have been uh, It was or Osaka against Yokohama F Marinos, Ange Postacoglu's team. Ah, yes. And Milos Degenek actually used to play for him as well. Who I think he was playing that game. And, um, yeah, that was a good stadium. It was kind of in the middle of nowhere, but it was the Japanese atmosphere. It was I probably the best imagine. atmosphere I've ever been in. It was, like, insane, the atmosphere over there.
1: So... Talking about Soccer City, the first – so we landed in South Africa. The next day, we went to Argentina, South Korea. We were two rows from the front, about halfway oh. on opposite to the benches. On the wing. On the wing. Packs of Argentina fans oh. around us. They were crazy. Um, but Simon, in his interview, uh, he's talked about Sydney Football Stadium not being like great for the Sydney FC. But the one time I've been there was the Asia Cup final. <laughs> Oh. Uh, Australia South Korea yeah. which is amazing. You went like, to that as
0: well? Oh yeah. Yeah, like, I that, went that, that was that. a was so great moment. That thing. was insane that game. That was a great game. Yeah. What happened I th- I was I think Simon Hill was talking about the Allianz though, wasn't he? Yeah, that's well, That was yeah, the end the final. Ah. Right. Yeah. But um Allianz
1: But <laughs> so, still the final. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was at that <laughs> great, that stadium and um yeah, just we were right – so where we were, it was all Australia but except behind the Korean goals. Yeah. So the Korean fans were just immense. We were really close to there as well and the Korean fans were going off. Yeah, like, like Yeah. just – the Korean fans were amazing and we were right on top of them. Yeah. So we had to like walk through them to get out out of our seats or into our seats and everything. Like they were just 120
0: minutes going, 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 going. It was so good to see. Yeah, it was insane. Um, And – Simon Hill, the Sydney football stadium, the actual one. Uh, they were talking about the one time fans of that, the Terry Antonis goal. So it's not the best stadium, but I've got good memories of that one. And, um, in Newcastle, uh, McDonald Jones Stadium. Oh, did you go to the final there? The semi final. Uh, no, oh, the final. Oh, the the A League Grand Final. I went yeah. to that and the Asian Cup semi final as well. Yeah. Uh, so it was Australia UAE, uh, in the Asian Cup in 2015. And, the – um, a-League final in 2017-18, it would have been. Uh, victory versus Newcastle, that was good. Uh, and you've been on a European trip before. Can you tell us yeah, about Yeah, so I the went to that- Europe
1: last year and Simon obviously talking about boutique stadiums. One of the ones I went to, especially in La Liga, Real Betis, 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 Real Betis Stadium, the, uh, the Via Marin, as they call it there, it's, it's tiny. It's probably a little bit bigger than Amy Park. It's probably three levels instead of the two that they have at Amy Park, but it's just so, and I love, it's so small. It's so boutique. It's a stadium. They don't share it with anyone. It's theirs. The, that's their ground. That's their territory. But I just love the way that it's in the middle of the city, which a lot of these like sort of European stadiums are. And we have it here in Melbourne as well. Like the MCG is right in the middle of the stadium, right in the middle of the city and uh, for instance, the MCG is an amazing, amazing ground, but so many teams share it. Whereas it was very interesting to see like that side of Betis, that side of the Spanish football, they all ha- have their own little boutique stadiums. But then the big teams such as Madrid and Barcelona, obviously I'm a Barcelona fan. So going to the camp now was amazing.
0: Yeah, amazing ground. It's just like, I oh, went for the tour there and a game and they're gone on the tour and it's just so big. And it's all, it's like, close to vertical. But, my fa- yeah, my favourite thing about the Barca
1: Stadium is from the outside it doesn't actually look that big because what yeah. they've done is only the top two levels are above ground. The other three levels are below ground. Yeah, and they're doing some upgrades to it as well. Yeah, so I saw when I went on the tour last year they they have the plans for it, the new Camp Null as they're going to call it, the yeah. Null Camp Null. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that should be cool. We're having a
0: roof and everything. but And they've got that one, at the moment, they've got the one side that's uh, yeah, not it's covered a, at all. It's a very old old stadium. Yeah, old very old. very old. Yeah.
1: They haven't really renovated since they moved there yeah. from the courts. But, um, but yeah. So I'm trying to think. Uh, the Amsterdam Arena. I have watched the game there. Uh, I didn't go last time I was there. Ajax's ground, of but, course. yeah, Ajax, Ajax Amsterdam. Um, really impressive ground. That like it's very high tech. One one strange thing is that the benches they don't have roofs. Oh, so it's just so you can they're just out in yeah. the open. It's so here you hear and see everything, hear, see
0: everything. If it rains on you, it rains on you. That's it. Yeah. Um, well, I went to Europe uh, a couple of years ago as well, and um, big football trip and big Arsenal fan, obviously. Uh, went to the Emirates Stadium. <laughs> Fucking hell. I'll just start that again. Yeah, <laughs> so, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, so I went to Europe a couple of years ago as well and big Arsenal fan, obviously. Uh, so I went to the Emirates Stadium for a couple of games and um, went to Anfield as well for Liverpool Arsenal. But got to say, Anfield, it's it's got a decent atmosphere for the you'll never walk alone bit, but the fans are pretty quiet other than that. And I was in the away end, the Arsenal end, and I was uh, second row from the back. And the away end, it's the bottom tier and the second tier – is like slopes down just above it. So the roof is just above my head and it's like looking through a letterbox. You could hardly see the ground from like the last few rows. It was not great viewing experience, but it was good experience going there. And yeah. went to Brighton's ground for the Premier League as well. That was good.
1: Yeah, one of my um weirder experiences at ground was um I went on like a sort of European tour when I was twelve to play and we visited. Uh, there, no one will know this team, but VVV Venlo, former oh Dutch team, Dutch team. Yeah. Yep, uh, Katsuka Honda played there sometime early yeah. in his career.
0: Yeah, and didn't he, he went go th- back? He went there. He went there on a trial then, back, and then and like, then he just went something. to Twente. Well, no, he just no. left
1: and went to Twente.
0: Yeah, he was there for like
1: a week or something. <laughs> to train, yeah, yeah, but yeah, <laughs> Venlo. So they have like a very very small stadium because they're they're still like not a huge team. And my small f- town. Very like I think it's a small town. They're right near Amsterdam, but um just the fact the the stadium is so small. They think if you know Melbourne grounds, Heidelberg United's ground, they have one big terrace and sort of grass around the side, but they still have like, but the the um, the away fan section is just so tiny. And I just thought not a lot of Ajax fans could go and watch their team if they're playing away to Venlo, like. It just wouldn't happen.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, What other football grounds have I been to? When I went to the UK, we went to Scotland and we we didn't actually see games. We went outside a few of the stadiums, like the two big teams in Glasgow, uh, Celtic and Rangers, and then Hearts and Hibs in Edinburgh. So we checked out their stadiums just from the outside. Uh, That was a good experience. And you can can kind of feel the kind of mystique around it. It's a bit of a cliche, but like Celtic's ground... uh, it's got all the statues around it. And yeah, um, really successful teams, really good. Yeah, so I think that about wraps us up. Yeah, let us know your favorite stadiums that you've been to on uh, Twitter. We're at WDWB Pod, the same on Instagram and Facebook, Where Do We Begin. And check us out on Patreon as well, patreon.com forward slash WDWB Pod. Help us on our little podcasting adventure. And I think, have you got anything else to say? No, that's it. Well, I think we'll go out with. Uh, What we promised before Simon Hill Giving his little A-League cover version Of Tainted Love
3: Hit it Sometimes Johnny Steele I've got to. Scott Galloway I've got to. Jordan I say from Connor Payne you drive Melbourne Heart with me Leandra Love We share seems to peer Mitgefield glare and I've lost Chris bright For I would give I can't Stephen bright Brad in man to you. Now I'll be you. This Leandro love you've given, I gave you a David Ball could give you. Take my tears, and that's not nearly Tommy Doyle. Leandro love. Leandro love. Danny so I've got to. Jeff Kellaway, I've got to. Danny hey You don't really want, Craig, more from me to make things Dwight You need someone to Brendan White And you think love is to hurt you for bake And bella slurry, I do not Marley, ma-lay-lay Once I a you, Brendan Gan, now I'll shank and chew this Leandro Love, you've given a Chad Gibson and Urson Golem Marcel Movis. That's not nearly John Hall. Leandro Love, Leandro Love, John Hutch, instant please. I cannot stand Lazaridis. A Daniel Mollon, though you can ill so. Now I'm Giancarlo Galafoco. Leandro love O'Donovan Leandro love O'Sullivan Leandro love Ognanovsky Leandro love Paul McGrady Broits me baby Leandro love Broich me baby Leandro love Leandro love Alan Barrow Leandro love O Bobo Leandro love Yuxuso The intro love from Asmar.